0: Welcome, everybody. My name is Mikal Nasrani, and this is Islam for Christians, episode 17, Shia Islam. Shias parade through the streets, beating their chests and chanting poetry. The pious work themselves into a fervor, crying and sometimes whipping themselves to show their grief. This is the celebration called Ashura on the 10th of Muharram on the Muslim calendar. This is a day of grief and mourning and penitence year after year for Shia Muslims. They are mourning the loss of Hussein, the third imam of the Shia faith. His father was Ali, the first imam of the Shia faith, the fourth and final rightly guided caliph, the first male Muslim, cousin and son-in-law to Muhammad, and the unwitting founder of a religion which, much like Christianity, was founded upon a tragic and inexplicable death. Ali was martyred just as Hussein was, just as Ali's older son Hassan was, and just as, 12 Shias claim, the first 11 Imams were. Hussein, in particular, would come to embody the Shia spirit of righteousness. One can't help from a Christian perspective but relate this to the Passion Ceremonies, which take place across the world come Good Friday. People nail themselves to crosses, or less extremely, are in a state of mourning and sadness. This culminates in Easter, of course, which is a joyous event. And why is Easter a joyous event? The resurrection pulls victory from the grasp of defeat, quickly turning a loss into a win. There is a promise that the bloodshed was not in vain, and all that is wrong will be made right again through this sacrifice. Through this concept, which is present in Shiism as well as many forms of Christianity, the problematic death of the founder, the concept of martyrdom, and the eschatology that eventually right[s] the wrong are joined at the hip. For those of you who don't know what eschatology, as it basically means what comes after, you know, heaven or hell, apocalypse, etc. In both Christianity and Shia Islam, the founder, Jesus, Ali, in the more dramatic case of Hussein, is killed unjustly as are the crucial people succeeding him, like the 12 apostles, 11 of the 12 imams. We'll get into that later. This holds up martyrdom as an ideal for later generations, and the underpinning eschatology rewards the martyr's behavior, i.e. heaven. Obviously, there are huge differences here. Hussein died in battle, not passively accepting death in the Christian style. But the similarities between Christianity and Shia Islam are many. Born in blood, raised in persecution, and sustained by passion. You've probably seen the word Shia written in several ways, usually S-H-I-A or S-H-I-I-T-E. There really is no right or wrong way, so let me give you some Arabic trivia about why this is. Every scholar seems to have his own opinion about the translation of the word. The Arabic phrase has four letters sh, e as in beat, transliterated as I usually, then an i, which is no English equivalent. It's often translated as an a and sounds like a camel groaning, and ta marbuta, which is a suffix applied to words that are female in gender. It's usually pronounced ah or at in some places. The reason I don't write Shia with an H is because the H denotes another Arabic letter, which is not present, but you may see that in certain places. To make things even more complicated, you will also see the word Shiite, S-H-I-I-T-E. So why is this? This is because the original meaning of Shia is followers, taken from the phrase followers of Ali. With this type of possessive grammar in Arabic that on the T-Marbuta is usually pronounced before the word Ali, thus Shiite Ali, followers of Ali. Um, I believe all the interpretations are correct, but I prefer the simplest one. So for what it's worth, I think Shia should be spelled S-H-I-A. So the Shia, what makes them different from their Sunni counterparts? the textbook explanation for the difference between Sunni and Shia is almost always the succession of Muhammad after his death and whom each side supported. It's correct, but it's really just a starting point. I started this episode talking about the commemoration of Hussein's martyrdom at Karbala, because that's really the birth of the divide, when Shia became an actual thing. So here's a short history of early Islam from the Shia perspective. The Prophet Muhammad died in 632, after only a decade overseeing the Muslim community in Medina. As the Quran and the Sunnah indicate, Ali, Muhammad's son-in-law, cousin, and best friend, according to Shia tradition, was his rightful successor. After a secret meeting, Abu Bakr seized power and became the first caliph of Islam. Ali, wanting to avoid bloodshed, abdicated to Abu Bakr. The same scenario played out with the rise of Umar and Uthman, whom Ali tolerated despite his clear position as the Prophet's infallible successor in an effort to avoid bloodshed. But eventually Ali was elected the fourth caliph. He was assassinated because he chose to govern by principle and piety rather than political practicality. His son Hassan became the second imam and, like his father, ceded power to prevent bloodshed. But his younger brother Hussein was sent by God for a different reason, to clearly show the difference between right and wrong. So Hussein and his family, marching to seize power that was rightfully theirs, they were massacred at Karbala on the 10th of Muharram in 61 after the Hijra. That's 61 in the Muslim calendar, 680 AD. Only one of Hussein's sons, Zainul Abidin, survived Karbala, and he would be considered the fourth imam. His descendants would fill the future line of infallible imams. So upon the death of the 11th imam, skipping ahead a bit, he, who was martyred like all of his predecessors, the 12th imam, who was only five years old at the time, went into something called occultation. During the minor occultation, 874 to 941 A.D., He was accessed only through intermediaries to keep him safe from his enemies. Then came the major occultation, 941 AD, to the present. God has hidden him away until it is time for the triumph of the Mahdi, and later, Jesus. That's Shia eschatology, we'll get into that later. This is the story according to Twelver Shiism, which is by far the largest sect of Shiism. It is called that because of its belief in the Twelve Imams. There are other Shia sects who have fewer imams. I will cover some of them in a future podcast on Islamic heretics, for lack of a better word. (laughs) But for now, we'll just stick with Twelver Shiism. It's the official religion of Iran, and it's overwhelmingly the dominant Shia sect. Okay, so I probably threw a few words at you that you may not have understood. So what's an imam, first of all? It's basically a Muslim priest, at least in the modern sense. If you walk into a mosque and you want the guy in charge, ask for the imam. But in Shi'ism, it's more special. These were basically Islamic popes, descended from Muhammad's family with a divine right to rule. The world ended this rather quickly, but the world ultimately couldn't destroy the line of imams. Why? Because the 12th went into occultation. Okay, so occultation. That doesn't mean he consults a Ouija board. The reason you have never heard the word occultation is because it doesn't really exist outside of Shia Islam. The best translation is invisible. No one will see the 12th Imam until the appointed time. We don't even know when the 12th Imam even went into the occultation. The major occultation simply happened when the last intermediary died, meaning no one could talk to him anymore. So was he alive at that point? No idea. Uh, You also heard Jesus in there somewhere, right? In the Muslim end times, Jesus returns to earth with a guy called the Mahdi, M-A-H-D-I, to make everything right. Keep in mind, this isn't a hard doctrine. It's a Hadith tradition and appears nowhere in the Quran. But it's particularly important for Shias. For Sunnis, the Mahdi is just some guy in the future who will be righteous and just. For Shias, it's a specific person. They already know who the Mahdi is. He is the 12th Imam currently in occultation. In Shiism, God works through the righteous family of Muhammad. In Shia theology, there are 14 infallible people. So it's important to know who these people are to understand Shia Islam. Unsurprisingly, they are all related to Muhammad. We just mentioned the 12 12 imams, who are all considered infallible, but the two extra infallibles are Muhammad himself and his daughter, Fatima. We all know Muhammad, but few outside Islam have ever heard of Fatima. She's pretty close to Mary in Shiism, although not a virgin. She was Muhammad's daughter and eventually Ali's wife. Her sons were Hassan and Hussein but we'll get to that in a second. Her main role is her purity at the beginning of the line of Imams. She was the daughter of a pure man, Muhammad, and the first Muslim, Khadijah. Remember Muhammad's first wife? Khadijah was Muhammad's first and only wife until she died shortly before the Muslims fled to Medina. From that pure beginning, she married Ali, the first Imam, and gave birth to two more Imams. Really, any Imam of true significance at least in earthly history, was either married to her or birthed by her. Okay, so let's go through the actual 12 imams. First, we have Ali. Ali is Ali. He's such a giant and so well-known. I'm not going to go into great detail here. This is about Shiism rather than general Islamic history. Just remember he was Muhammad's cousin and son-in-law, a pious man and a fierce warrior. He was the fourth and last of the rightly guided caliphs after Muhammad's death. He was killed as he prayed by an extremist whack job. And that's important. Every imam, save the 12th, was martyred according to Shia tradition, even those who appear to die of natural causes. Speaking of that, the second imam, Hassan. Hassan is considered holy in the second imam and all that, but his actions don't really fit the passion of what would later be called Shi'ism. After Ali's death, and probably facing a military rout from Muawiyah, Hassan abdicated his claim to the caliphate, reaching a negotiated settlement. He lived a pretty great life in Medina, eventually dying a rich man. And it was a rather anonymous life, too. Historians still don't know precisely when he died, but how he died is important. According to Shi'a lore, He was poisoned by one of his wives. And now the third Imam, Hussein, the giant who refused to make the compromises of his older brother, the hero slash tragic figure of the Battle of Karbala. More on the significance of Karbala later, which would become a microcosm of good and evil for all ensuing Shia Muslims. So let's start in the year 680. The Caliph Mu'awiyah died. You may remember the, that uh, Mu'awiyah was the first political caliph of the Muslim empire, the fifth caliph who followed the four rightly guided caliphs. You could call him the inaugural wrongly guided caliph. He was also the son of one of the chief early prosecutors, not pros- persecutors of the Muslims, Abu Sufyan. You see, you see the cosmic setup here. I totally understand why she has found his presence on the throne intolerable. Anyway, it's 680 and he dies. He appoints his son Yazid as his successor, beginning his own hereditary dynasty. Hussein becomes convinced that he has a chance to seize power. So he gathers a small army and marches north to Kufa, modern-day Iraq and, at the time, the empire's capital. He was hoping to inspire an uprising once he got to Kufa, but he never made it there. Yazid's troops eventually cut off Hussein's party And what ensued was the birth of Shia Islam, the 10th day of the Islamic month of Muharram. Hussein and much of his family were slaughtered. Karbala is the most important Shia shrine in the world, something which made the news during the U.S. invasion of Iraq. While not all Iraqis were thrilled at the U.S. presence in Iraq, I'm sure the Shias were thrilled Karbala would once again be under Shia control. So almost all of the martyrs from that day in Karbala were buried on site, with one exception. Hussein's head was brought to Kufa and eventually made its way to Damascus, where it was buried. Or maybe it made made its way to Cairo. Um, Apparently there are shrines marking its burial in both places. One of the survivors of Karbala was the fourth imam, Ali. Yes, Ali, named after his grandfather. Full name Ali ibn Hussein Zayn al-Abidin. Imam number four was the only son of Hussein to survive Karbala because he was so ill that he was bedridden during the battle and he never fought. Yazid allowed him to leave and eventually go to Medina, where he stayed out of politics and became a respected non-political religious figure. Shia tradition holds that he was eventually poisoned by a later Umayyad caliph. The fifth imam. Muhammad al-Bakir, lived a similar life. He also died by poisoning, according to Shia tradition. This is a theme you will see frequently among the 12 Imams. A cynic would say this is a convenient way to discuss a natural death and turn it into a martyrdom. But anyway, things get a bit more interesting after this guy. Jafar as-Sadiq, the 6th Imam. Jafar led a similar life to Imams 3 and 4 and was a wealthy landowner in Medina. He did not in- get involved in politics, so why is he more interesting than his predecessors? He could have been involved in politics, very much so. Around 750, the Abbasids came to power, called the Abbasids because they were descendants of Al-Abbas, Muhammad's uncle. They were Banu Hashim, Muhammad's clan, and this gave extra weight, to Shiite claims regarding the importance of Muhammad's family. At the height of the revolution, partisans openly offered the caliphate to Jaffer. He declined. Why? We don't really know. He was certainly busy. Jaffer was the founder of what came to be known as Shia law. Perhaps he was simply happier as a scholar and a holy man. It's not a bad life. Perhaps he was scared. But it's all conjecture. conjecture. <laughs> He was supposedly poisoned as well. So Ja'far was followed by his son Musa al-Kazim. This is the point of the first Shia split, with some Shia's following the line of Ja'far's other son, Ishmael. They would be called Ismailis, and I may get into that in a future podcast. They survive to this day, but their numbers are a very small fraction of the total of Shia Muslims. Ismailis are also called Seveners, like 12 Shiism you know, just with fewer Imams. Um, back to Musa al kazim By the time Jafar died, Ishmael was already dead, so he couldn't be the next Imam, thus the ascension of Musa. So for almost all Shias, he is the seventh Imam. You may have heard the saying, turn on to politics, or else politics will turn on you. And that's exactly what happened to the Imam, starting with Musa, who tried to stay above the fray like his father, But was eventually considered a threat. The current caliph took him from Medina and brought him back up to Iraq, where he was placed under house arrest in Basra and then in the new capital of Baghdad. Shias believe he was eventually poisoned by the caliph. Imam number eight is Ali ar Ridda, who was actually the heir to the caliphate when he died. The caliph made him a son in law through his daughter, thus the crown prince in a political move to quell Shia rebellions. But the caliph eventually saw this as a mistake, mainly because his crown prince may have been more popular than he was. Getting ahead of events, the caliph poisoned this imam. So the ninth imam, Muhammad al jawad only made it to 25 years old before he was poisoned by a caliph. After this, it was becoming obvious how fearful the empire's rulers were of the imams, in 850, the caliph actually ordered the destruction of Hussein's shrine at Karbala. The 10th imam, Ali al-Hadi, made it to 40 years old before he was poisoned. The 11th imam, Hassan al askari spent all of his 28 years in prison or under house arrest before he was poisoned. So then we get to the 12th and final imam, Muhammad al badin M-A-H-D-I, it's kind of very hard to pronounce, (laughs) Mahdi with the H. So Sunnis say the 11th Imam died without an heir. But the Shias say he did have an heir, but he was kept secret for his own protection. But this is the Shia episode, so we'll go with the Shia story. This hidden Imam, Shias believed, communicated through intermediaries for a few generations. This is known as the minor occultation. And after that, he just plain disappeared. This is the major occultation, which is still the current state of Imam al-Mahdi. So that's the story of the 12 Imams. In some way, it's not too different from the 12 apostles and Jesus. They were righteous men killed by their spiritual inferiors. But a key difference is there was never a resurrection of anyone in Shi'ism. In Christianity, Jesus rose three days later but the Shias are still waiting for the hidden imam to show up. It's very important to remember that Shiism was born in suffering and victimhood and powerlessness. Thus, it is fitting that the faith was born at Karbala, because it was a microcosm of the Shia experience to come. If I was asked to give the three main characteristics of Shiism, the succession crisis after Muhammad's death really wouldn't even make the cut, even though that's kind of the textbook example of what is a Shia. My top three would be Karbala, Karbala, and Karbala. So now, I want to go over the extra significance of Hussein and Karbala. To Shia senses, the Battle of Karbala is not just one in a series of unjust events committed against the Shia. It is the event in Shia history, the pinnacle of the unfathomably unjust. The event encapsulates all that can be unjust and evil in the world. Imam Hussein embodies all that is righteous and just and pure and holy, while Yazid and his Umayyad accomplices in the battle embody all that is evil and wrong. This is remembered every year during during Maharam, the first month of the Islamic lunar calendar. The events at Karbala are, to a Shia, a microcosm of all the things in the world and of the divine, When a Shia weeps for Hussein, he is weeping for the absence of justice in the world. When a Shia curses Yazid, he is cursing every murderer and rapist and thief the world has ever seen. Hussein is justice embodied. Yazid and his buddies are evil embodied. Karbala was the place where evil was allowed to triumph over over righteousness and where Hussein showed the proper action in a world full of evil. Shias ingest the spirit of Hussein in the way Christians eat and drink the the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. So one reason this event is placed above the death of Ali is because the narrative fits what became the archetypal Shia experience as the years went by. Oppression, futility, and suffering. As wonderful as Ali was, he could change things from a position of power after he was made the fourth caliph of the Islamic Empire. Ali enjoyed power, which the formative Shia community could never dream of. You can see the spirit of Karbala in modern-day Iran, both in the Iranian Revolution of 1979 and in the Iran-Iraq War from 1980 to 1988. The spirit of Karbala was used during both. In both events, the nation of Iran was Hussein, the weaker of the two parties, but armed with justice, courage, and sacrifice. Hussein's killers were first the Shah, then after he was gone, the role of Yazid was played by Saddam Hussein and the invading Sunni army from Iraq. Just think of the dripping, confusing irony of that situation. Iran is invaded by a Sunni named Hussein, and the infidel Hussein is turned back by a Shia army inspired by the original Hussein. Oy. So Karbala was remembered and the Iranian soldiers were encouraged to give their lives for Hussein, the ancient Hussein. The spirit of martyrdom stemming from Karbala was instrumental in Iran's infamous human wave attacks in that horrible bloody war. The irony, though, is that modern Iran found a way to channel Karbala to achieve victory. Winning is an awkward situation for Shias and it's just possible the Shia may have unlocked a powerful weapon previously underutilized in Shia history. Stay tuned. Iran is certainly throwing its weight around more than ever before. I don't think any of this is lost on Israel in the present situation either. More so than with a typical Sunni country, Israel is probably extra paranoid of Iran's intentions given the culture and the history that has been baked into Shia Islam is it prejudice to think that the ayatollahs just might sacrifice their entire country in a nuclear exchange and happily so it's karbala that gives that thought even if paranoid a little bit of extra weight yes karbala a battle that took place in a previous millennia it's hard for an american to understand all this you know for better and worse we have very very short memories But for the ancient traditions of the Middle East, it's really not that unusual. Even more stunning, the sectarian lines haven't moved for more than a thousand years. Sunnis and Shias are pretty much in the exact same place as they were when people were looking for the 12th Imam. And this is all critical to modern geopolitics, to step out of religion a little further for a second here. Since the revolution in 1979... Shiism has become almost synonymous with the nation of Iran. Its population is 90-plus percent Shia, and I believe it's the only country that can actually claim that, at least among large countries. Bahrain, Azerbaijan, and Iraq are about two-thirds Shia, while Lebanon and Yemen are around 40% to a half Shia. There are two major things you need to know to make sense of the labyrinth of rivalries in the Middle East. The first is which countries are Arab and which are non-Arab, and then which ones are Sunni and which ones are Shia. Why does Saudi Arabia hate Iran? One is Arab and Sunni, and the other is non-Arab and Shia. Why is Iraq such a mess? Even among Arabs, Sunni and Shia do not get along well, and the overthrow of Saddam Hussein moved the power center from the minority Sunni to the majority Shia. Why does Lebanon allow its southern regions to be dominated by Hezbollah terrorists? Because they represent the Shia, and it seems like enough of the Shia population is cool with that. Why are the Saudis fighting in Yemen? The rebels are Shia, and the Saudis are not. And why is Iran funneling money and weapons to all these places? One reason is sectarian solidarity. So, There's the history and the politics and the current sectarianism. What else, aside from Karbala and the Imams, makes the Shia different? Not a whole lot, actually. From the outside, the fights between Sunni and Shia seem silly to us because they seem so small, so minute when it comes to actual doctrine and practices. But really, you could say the same thing about Catholics and Protestants. And you could say the same thing about the Great Schism from a 1,000 years ago, which separated the Catholic and the Orthodox churches. That looks particularly moronic to someone looking on from the outside. Shias have the same profession of faith as the Sunnis. They pray daily. They pay the poor tax. They fast during Ramadan. They read the same Quran. There is a reason they are called Shia Muslims, not members of the Shia religion. But obviously, there are some more differences. For one, Shias use a different set of hadiths, which are collections of the saying and deeds of Muhammad. One major reason for this is the person of Aisha, Muhammad's most beloved wife after Khadijah, and Abu Bakr's daughter. Remember that Abu Bakr is the person Shias believe rightly stole the succession after Muhammad's death. And his daughter, Aisha, is a major, major source of the Hadith traditions, not only because she was close to Muhammad, but because she was so young at the time. As the years went by, she was one of the only credible living sources on Muhammad. The Shia have their own authoritative Hadith collection, usually known as the Four Books. And those four books are number one, Al Kafi, which means the sufficient, number two, Man La. Yadruhu al-Fiqah, I am my own jurist. Number three, Tadib al-Aqam, which means the refinement of laws. And four, al-Ista-Bissar, which means foresight. The Shias also have different major theological schools. They're usually linked to one of the revered Imams, but the only one that could probably be called major in the same way as the four schools of Sunni Islam, are major, is the Jafari school. Named after the sixth imam Jafar, it is the official school used by the Iranian clerics. This is important not only because Iran is the largest and most recognized Shia country, but because it is also the home to the intellectual center of Shiism, the city of Qom, Q-O-M. Qam is the Shia version of Vatican City, home to as many as 200,000 religious scholars. As Qam goes, so does the intellectual direction of the Shias. Most schools of Shia thought fall under the Jafari umbrella in one way or another, including possibly the Ishmaeli school, depending on who you ask. And one other major school is the Zaidiya school, named after Ali's great-grandson, who died in a revolt against the caliph. That school is popular in Yemen. And Apart from those three, Jafari, Ismaili, Zaidiya, anything that does not fall under one of those three umbrellas is considered gulat. Gulat is the name given to Shia heresies. The word means extremists or exaggerators. Gulat sects and I hope to cover this in a podcast very soon, include the Alawites, the Druze, the Baha'is who grew out of Babism, and the Ahmadiyya. One other thing I may have failed to mention here, Shias are only 15% of the Muslim population, at most, might be closer to 10. In places like the Middle East, it can seem like there's some balance between Sunni and Shia, with Iran basically in control of Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Bahrain, and parts of Yemen. But in the wider Islamic world, the population difference isn't even close. Africa is Sunni, including Egypt's large population. Turkey is Sunni. Balkan Muslims are Sunni. Pakistan and most of the former Soviet Muslim republics in Central Asia are Sunni. Indian Muslims are Sunni. Islam's largest country, Indonesia, is Sunni. So the Shia are a significant minority, which is appropriate when you think about it. After all, what is Shiaism without oppression, without the enduring legacy of Karbala? It would be like Christianity without the cross. In other words, nothing. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah.